Let me invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn to Matthew chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, the passage will be on the screen in just a moment. Uh, We are looking this year, our Advent season, we're looking at Advent slash Christmas through a variety of different lenses. A couple weeks ago, we talked about Christmas uh, to the skeptic, to someone who, who doesn't necessarily believe. Last week, we talked about Christmas to the marginalized, that those who are struggling with oppression uh, or poverty or loss of some kind. This morning, we're going to talk about what Advent through the lens of the faithful. So if you're here this morning, you're claiming to be a disciple of Jesus, and you're following him, you've given your life to him, you're believing in him and him alone for salvation, what is your Christmas experience? What does Advent look like to you and to me this morning? Uh, It it doesn't always work out perfectly. Because you're a disciple of Jesus doesn't mean your life is simple. It doesn't mean your life is easy. In fact, the Lord Jesus, one of the things he said, take up your cross, die to yourself and come follow me. Jesus says in this world, you're going to have many troubles, many tribulations, but don't fear, I have overcome the world. So what does it look like when, uh, you know, you, you kind of get in, engrossed in all the, you know, the noise and the shopping and the gifts and the family celebrations and all, you know, all of this busyness is going on around us. We can tend to lose our way at Christmas time. We can also tend to uh, experience, you know, less than what some call the joy of Christmas. Sometimes your very best intentions for the holiday don't always work out the way you intended. Uh, case in point, there was a gentleman in England a few years ago who worked at the local post office. And one day he got a letter in the, in the pouch and it was kind of tattered and broken and it looked like it was written on an older piece of paper and it was not really sealed all the way and the address was to God. And so he thought, well, I better open this and take a look at it. And here's what he read. Dear God, I'm a 93-year-old widow living on the state pension. Yesterday, someone stole my purse. It had 100 pounds in it, which was all the money I had in the world, and no pension due until after Christmas. Next week is Christmas, and I have invited two of my friends over for Christmas lunch. Without that money, I have nothing to buy food with. I have no family to turn to. You are my only hope. God, can you please help me? Well, fortunately, this particular gentleman who worked at the post office understood that he could be used by God to help meet this person's need. And so he gathered everybody at the post office around, and he read the letter out loud to them, and then he tacked it up on the wall, and he put a little basket under it. He said, if you can help, let's see if we can't replace this woman's 100 pounds so that she can experience Christmas. They ended up raising 95 of the 100 that had been, been stolen, and they anonymously got it back to her. About a week after that, he received another letter in a tattered envelope addressed to God, and it read as the following, Dear God, how can I ever thank you enough for what you did for me? Because of your generosity, I was able to provide a lovely luncheon with, for my friends. We had a very nice day, and I told my friends of your wonderful gift. In fact, we haven't gotten over it, and even Father John, our parish priest, is beside himself with joy. By the way, there was five pounds missing. I think it must have been those thieving fellows at the post office. (laughs) Sometimes even when you have the correct spirit around the holiday season, things don't always go right. What should Advent look like to the faithful? Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, hear the word of God. 
Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, for so it was written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the tribes of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary's mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that we can worship you with our voices, that we can sing of your praise, that we can remember the first advent, the first coming of our Lord Jesus uh, with the anticipation of your second coming when you will make all things right, when your eternal kingdom will be established. Uh, Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Father, in the meantime, uh, until that day or until uh, we die and go to be with you, we pray that you would lead us. We pray that we would have teachable hearts. We pray, Lord, for ears to hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Father, we pray that we wouldn't consider this word for someone else, but that we would uh, seek to worship you with our reason, with our mind, with our intellect, and that we would ask, Father, what do you have for me this morning? Father, we don't come here to hear my words. They're of no importance. We come here to hear the eternal word of God, and we pray that you would teach us this morning. Father, forgive my sin. Please do not let me be a hindrance to your word today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the coming of Jesus, the first coming of Jesus, confirmation of God's redemption for all who believe. Uh, That's where we want to kind of land uh, the plane, so to speak, this morning on that runway of of all who believe. You may be here this morning and say, I'm not a believer. I'm here kind of checking things out. I'm not sure about this God thing. Uh, Maybe a friend brought me or a family member asked me to come to church. We're so thankful you're here and we hope you will continue uh, to come back. But perhaps you're wondering, how do believers live their lives? How do believers uh, interact with with God and with others? And this would be perhaps a demonstration of that this morning. As a believer, my encouragement for each one of us is to look back into this story and and kind of see ourselves here, uh, perhaps as the faithful, and what can we discern from them that can be applied to us today? Because the bottom line question is, how how does my belief work itself out? We're going to have three observations in this text. The first is, we're going to talk about faith or seeking the king. Secondly, we're going to observe in this text, worshiping the king. And then the third observation will be obeying the king. So let's talk about seeking the king at verses 1 
and 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of King Herod, behold, wise men from the east, uh, probably Persia, came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who is born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Notice the context in which they're operating. They, they have discerned in some way that there's something divine happening in Jerusalem. Now, uh, historians and commentators have wrestled with this question, how did they discern this? And I think the best educated guess based on scripture is that these men were from Persia, uh, an area that used to be called Babylon. And there's an Old Testament prophet who actually lived most of his life in Babylon, and his name was Daniel. And if you go back and you read the Old Testament book of Daniel, which you could do this afternoon after lunch, you will find Daniel prophesying about the coming king about the coming Messiah, and he's going to come in and through Israel. So now you're several hundred years later, and something in the night sky has lined up for you, and, I, and I'm not one who studies that, but others have, and you can read about that as well. Something is said to you, there, there's something divine that's happening. And you happen to be a person who has studied in depth the scroll uh, that we would call the book of Daniel, and you, and you know from that prophecy that there's a promise that there's going to be a divine king who's going to come in and through Israel. So what do you do? You go to the capital of Israel. You travel to Jerusalem. This is an act of faith because they're motivated by the same longing that motivates you and me to be here this morning. Why are you here this morning? Why am I here today? It's not just because I get paid to be here. I would be in church somewhere if I was, if I was not paid. Because there's a longing in my heart. There's a deep longing in your heart to know the true meaning of life. To understand that there is significance in your life. And so they saw the star and they didn't come to investigate. They didn't come to check it out. They didn't come to ask interesting questions and have a conversation. They came to act on that faith. They came to worship. Why? Because they know, they knew, and we know there has to be something more. No matter how many really wonderful toys you get on Christmas morning, eventually they're going to wear out, they're going to break, or you're going to outgrow them. No matter if you get that wonderful coat that you've been hoping to get all fall because you need a new nice winter coat, that coat is eventually going to wear out. And no matter how many times you enjoy driving around and looking at Christmas lights, Cindy and I went to the grocery store last night and got ahead of all y'all that haven't been in the grocery store yet, and it's going to snow three inches, so we might all starve. Who knows? Um, <laughs> but then we got some hot chocolate, and what do we do? You know, just sappy of all sappy, we drove around and looked at Christmas lights. And you know what? Eventually, those are going to come down. And by the way, for those of you that think that it's appropriate and good and okay to keep your Christmas lights up till Valentine's Day... Could I just speak for the rest of us and say, please take them down by like the middle of January. There is a time limit on these things, but the lights will fade. But there's something deep inside of us that says, no, this, what we're after here ought to last. It, it, it ought not fade. And you know what? You're thinking biblically when you think that. If you go to the book of Ecclesiastes, in chapter 3, verse 11, the author of Ecclesiastes says this, God has put eternity in the heart of man. There's a reason you think the way you think. It's because you know something isn't quite right because God's created you for something more profound. 
And that, that's, that faith, that seeking of the king is a longing, not just for, for meaning for you, but it's a longing for God's glory. But also notice that seeking the king here, that faith here requires a sacrifice. They've said, we've come to worship him. Now, every Christmas Eve, if you've been around Christmas Eve once or a dozen times, you know we do the same thing every Christmas Eve and every service. We say to the congregation, who's come the farthest to worship here at Green Tree? Not to be with the family. I kind of tie it to me. Uh, but, you know, who's, who's come the furthest to church tonight? We've had people from Europe. I think we actually had somebody from the Far East one time. It was like the furthest anybody had come. Our kids were in town one time that had come from Hawaii. I think they might have won. And we give them a gift card to a really nice restaurant so they can enjoy the St. Louis experience. You know, like White Castle or something like that. But we, we, we talk about, you know, a long way. And, and if you come from Hawaii, you're very fortunate if you're coming to St. Louis, if you can do that in 12 hours. That, that, you know, it takes you pretty much a whole day to get there. And you say, that's a long trip. These guys left several months before. This was not a, a, a week-long trip. This is not a 10-day trip. This is not a couple weekends with a week in the middle. These guys were traveling by camel for a long time to get to Jerusalem. They were seeking the king. Faith requires sacrifice. It was a long, arduous journey from Persia. And I would argue that your faith and my faith today, it, it calls for a sacrifice. It calls for an acknowledgement that God is Lord and I am not and that I need to seek him with everything I have because Jesus promises if you seek, you're going to find. Faith requires some sacrifice, but also notice that God does not disappoint. Faith leads to discovery. Look at verses 10 and 11. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. They threw up their hands, they celebrated, they shouted, they clapped, they high-fived. This is not a golf clap, right? You know, but you know that, that, that's kind of nice. They were jumping up and down saying, where's the champagne? They might have had champagne. They might have broke it out and started, you know, but they were having a party because they were so excited, not that the journey was over, but that they could go into the house, see the child, and then they fell down and they worshiped him. God provided the answer to their prayers. Their seeking of the king was met with God's fulfilling his promise. I had a, uh, received a note this week from a member at Green Tree, and he was telling me a little bit, he was telling me several things in the note, but one of the things he was telling me was about his faith journey. He said, you know, I, here's where I kind of started as an unbeliever, but then I started doing this, and then this person talked to me, and then, and then this person kind of walked me through some Bible stuff, and I eventually got to here where I put my faith in Christ. And I'm like, your, your journey, your seeking led to discovery. Why? Because what we need to understand ultimately is the wise men weren't seeking out God. God was already seeking out the wise men. Why do you think Daniel ended up in Babylon in the first place? You think that was a mistake? You think that was a quirk of fate? It was because God was going to bring redemption to, to, to the Magi as well as to you and to me this morning. Faith leads to discovery. Seeking leads to finding. The coming of Jesus is confirmation of that force. But secondly, not only did they seek, but then they responded in worship. And there are three components to their worship. We're just going to mention them this morning. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. We've just mentioned that. Going into the house, when they saw the child with Mary, his mother, they fell down. They prostrated themselves. They bowed down and worshiped him. Now, the New Testament is written in Greek. If it was written in, in the Old Testament Hebrew, that would seem a bit redundant because the word worship in the Old Testament, in, in the ancient Hebrew, literally means to fall down. So in the Hebrew, it said they fell down and they fell down. <laughs> they were over, really emphasizing the fact that we are before divine royalty. 
we, we're not standing up. We are bowing before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And then the third part of their worship was to offer him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And I want to spend the rest of our time on this point talking about those three gifts. The first is the gift for a king. Gold is a gift that belonged to royalty. Seneca, who was a Roman historian who lived during this time, he died in 65 AD, so he was alive at the birth of Jesus, says this, gold, the metal of kings. It was the custom in Persia that none approached the king without a gift, the proper gift of gold. As these magi are approaching Christ, what they're saying is, you are my king. I am bowing before you. You are the one who is royal and divine. But the second gift they gave was not a gift for a king, but it was a gift specifically for God. It was the gift of frankincense, or what you and I might call incense. Now, we need to do a little bit of history on this to understand it. If you go back to the book of Exodus, and the very first uh, organizing of God's worship with the people of Israel, as they come out of Egypt, God appoints Aaron to be the high priest. He appoints, let's keep it simple. They, God appoints Aaron to be the lead pastor, and he's going to organize worship. And here are part of his instructions. Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it. There's a table. In the morning, when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it as a regular, burn it, a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generation. So this isn't just for the time being. This is for all generations. What's the point of having a nice smelling candle in your house this time of year? What does it do? It reminds you of something. If you like the aroma, you might, you might, oh, that reminds me of the home I grew up and I have wonderful memories of, of my Christmas's childhood. Or it might uh, be like a pine forest and maybe you have memories of hiking through the snow in Colorado Christmas. But the whole point of the aroma is that whatever comes up and out has an aroma that makes you think of something. What God is doing here with the people of Israel is saying, I want you to understand something. When you offer your prayers to God, it comes up as a fragrant aroma to him. God's listening. He cares. This is a metaphoric metaphor. This is a word picture. This is something we can look at to know what actually is happening spiritually. When you pray, your father is listening. David says as much. The psalmist says as much in Psalm 141. Oh Lord, I call upon you. Give ear to my voice when I call to you. Let my prayers be counted as incense before you. David understood the picture of my prayers are going up before God. It's a pleasing aroma. We get a picture of this again in the last book of the New Testament, a revelation as the angel is trying to help John understand and comprehend the worship of God. This is part of the message. Another angel came and stood at the altar with the golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. What is this picture of incense trying to tell us? It's reminding us that we bring our praise and our prayers, our concerns, our confessions of our sins, uh, our worship of God in prayer. We bring all that to them and we offer it to him as our gift of worship. And God delights in the worship of his people. So think of it this way. I have three kids 
A lot of you know this. One of them lives in Kansas City. One of them, uh, he's single. One of them's married with four kids, and he lives in California. And then our daughter lives with her husband and two kids in Hawaii. None of those places are all that close to St. Louis, Kansas City being the closest. I try to talk to each of my children at least once a week by this wonderful technology we have called a phone. Now, I, I, I don't always hit it, but I try to. But what are the best phone calls that I have with my children? Hands down, across the board, no questions asked. It's when they call me. It's not when I call them and they say, oh, hey, Dad, hadn't thought of you in two weeks. How you doing? <laughs> right? It's when they call me and say, I just wanted to check in with you. I just, I just want to see how you're doing. What's going on with you and mom? And they call because they want to talk with me. As the, the old, from the Old Testament to the book of Revelation, one of the things Scripture is trying to teach you and me is that we don't come before a father who has his arms folded and his, frow, uh, his brow furrowed and he's angry with us. We come before a father who welcomes us up into his lap and rejoices in our love for him. And, and because he's given us that love in the first place. And, and he, uh, his desire is that we would understand that, that we would come into his presence with joy, with sadness, wherever we are in our lives, because he made us for a relationship with him. I'll say this to you children that are living at home with your parents. Initiate a conversation with them every once in a while. Be the one who goes to them. Don't wait for them to come to you. Sit them down one day and say, you know, how's that parenting thing going for you, mom? How, <laughs> Dad, how how are you feeling about being a dad these days? You know, let me tell you from my perspective, you're doing a great job with me, but I got a little trouble with the other ones, but but hang in there and keep at it, right? Believe it or not, your mom and dad will eat that up with a spoon. We love it when our children come and talk to us. Our worship of God is a fragrance offering of prayer to our Lord and to our King. But then there's one other gift, and that's the gift of myrrh. And myrrh has two components to it. It has the component of preservation, and it has the component of healing. Let's talk about preservation for just a second. In John chapter 19, and I've compressed these verses down. There's a little more to them than this. You can read it later. But in John 19, this is a summary of these verses. Jesus has has died on the cross. Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate that he might take the body of Jesus. Pilate gave him permission. Nicodemus also came, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. And they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. What were Joseph and Nicodemus doing? Well, they were making a mistake, and they were forgetting that Jesus said in three days he was going to rise from the dead, and they were wasting 75 pounds of really good spices. But what did they think they were doing? They think they were honoring their fallen friend. They think that they were, they, were, they were trying to bring respect to this rabbi who had been murdered by his constituents in Jerusalem. They were trying to do the right thing. Myrrh is a preservative that, that keeps and cares for even the body for some amount of time. It was an act of, of worship on their part. But it's not just preservation. Or it's not just uh, preservation. It's also healing. Myrrh has a, has a healing component to it as well. If, you, if any of you ever had an aloe plant, my mom used to have an aloe plant in her house, and she'd cut off a piece with, with a pair of scissors, and the, the sap would kind of ooze out. And if you had a little burn on your wrist, you know, you'd touch the coffee pot or something, she'd just rub it on there, and, and after a day or two, boy, it really worked. It has a healing uh, structure to it as well. So myrrh as a preservation was not just given by the magi to, to foreshadow the coming death of Jesus, 
and his crucifixion on the cross and his burial, but it was also coming as a promise of what is yet to come. And we find that in Revelation chapter 22. The healing of God is not yet complete. If you're a disciple of Jesus this morning, you're in some senses, you're totally well because you're in right relationship with God because of what Christ has done for you. But on the other hand, you still live in a sinful, broken world. You still make mistakes. You still feel pain. And that part of it, that healing process is not yet done, but it will be one day. It will come to completion. Revelation chapter 22, the very last description in the Bible of heaven. Then the angel showed me the river of, of life, the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. In one, in one sense of the word, the, the Magi brought the gift of myrrh to Jesus. And he, and, and he receives it, and then he compounds it, and he makes it infinitely greater, and he gives it back to all of us in the new heavens and the new earth. The reason the right response is to not only seek, but to worship is because the day of healing is coming. The king has sacrificed all. He has given everything in order that we might have life. And so our prayers go up before him. Our very best is given to him because he is the one who redeems his people. Therefore, we seek and we find, we worship the king. And thirdly, we obey the king. Verse 12, an interesting twist. So Herod's out to get Jesus. He doesn't know his name is Jesus, but Herod's out to stay on his own throne. Herod murdered uh, at least one, if not two of his own kids to stay on the throne. So he certainly doesn't care about some obscure Jewish child. He'll, he'll murder him at the drop of a hat. And God knows this and understands this. He's a whole lot smarter than Herod, and so he's already 20 steps ahead of him. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. The first thing that I want us to see is that they heard the instructions. They were listening. They didn't say, oh, I had a bad dream last night. It must have been the anchovies on the pizza. They got together and they said, here's the dream. We all had the dream. We better pay attention. Do I have that attitude when I approach my relationship with God? When I open up my Bible and I sit and I read, do I, do I say, boy, I better pay attention? Not because my obedience saves me, not because it puts me in right relationship with God. I'm already in right relationship with God, but because it directs my steps on how I follow Jesus. We spent most of the fall talking about what it means to follow Jesus. He's the Lord. He's the King. I'm the one following him. I belong to him. Am I listening for the instructions. And then secondly, am I following the instructions? Am I, am I paying attention? So here's a, a little visual of, of this obedience, not just hearing, but what does it say? They returned, and they departed to their country by another way. They obeyed. They, they listened to the king. They listened to the father of the king, really, who was speaking to them, and they obeyed his voice. Part of my relationship with God is seeking out not only the fact that he's king and worshiping him, but listening for what he says about, hey, Tom, here's how you be a husband. Tom, this is the way you be a dad and a grandpa. Tom, this is the way you conduct your, 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 your work with your staff at Green Tree Community Church. Here's how you and the other shepherds should, should care for the people of Green Tree Community Church. Tom, here's how you should spend your money. Here's what you should do with your free time. All of that is life-giving to me if I, will, if I will listen to it and I will obey it. 
It's not hard to find. It's right here in God's word. The question isn't, do I have access to? The question is whether or not I will look for it, seek it out, and then I will obey it because going home by another way is really the right response. In the 1980s, James Taylor wrote a song called Home by Another Way. And I was actually surprised when I heard the song that James Taylor wrote it because James Taylor, and I I don't mean this in a mean spirit of way, he very specifically says he is not a follower of Jesus. He does not believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He thinks Jesus has some good things going for him. Uh, But James, so what surprised me was this song is really a gospel song. It really speaks to the truth of scripture. Uh, The the idea of going home by another way. So just listen, I'm not gonna sing it, don't panic. It's okay. It's still safe. Uh, but, but listen uh, to the words of this song and think about obeying Christ. Those magic men, the magi, some people call them wise or oriental, even kings. Anyway, well, those guys, they visited with Jesus and they sure enjoyed their stay, but then warmed in a dream of King Herod's scheme, they went home by another way. And then the chorus, yes, they went home by another way. Home by another way. Maybe me and you can be wise guys too and go home by another way. We can make it another way. Safe home, as they used to say. Keep a weather eye to the chart on high and go home by another way. Steer clear of royal welcomes. Avoid a big to-do. A king who would slaughter the innocents will not cut a deal for you. He really, really wants those presents. He'll comb your camel's fur until his boys announce they found trace amounts of your frankincense, gold and myrrh. Then the chorus, let's go home by another way. And then the bridge in the song goes like this. Home is where your heart is now. Excuse me, home is where they want you now. You can more or less assume that you'll be welcome there in the end. You really mustn't let King Herod haunt you so or fantasize his features when you're looking at a friend. It pleasures me to be here and to sing this song tonight. They tell me life's a miracle. I figure that they're right. But Herod's always out there. He's got our cards on file. It's a lead pipe cinch if you give an inch. Old Herod likes to take a mile. It's best to go home by another way. Yes, home by another way. When I obey the king, (laughs) what I'm saying is there's a better pathway. There's a more glorious pathway than the one that I can create for myself. And I, and I literally bow the knee before the Lord in obedience and enjoy trusting him, not earning my salvation, but as a result thereof. So what do we do with this passage this morning? The holiday season is busy. Frantic might be a better word. It's full of all kinds of different messages. The genuine celebration, the true meaning can be easily lost. I believe it's key for those of us who claim discipleship of Jesus to remember our faith is at the center of this celebration. So what's our application this morning? I think our application is actually the three points of the sermon. First, am I deliberately finding my greatest significance in Christ Jesus and in him alone? Am I seeking him above everything else, whether it's in my daily time in the word and in prayer or whether it's in uh, time uh, with brothers and sisters in Christ, uh, but making his relationship with me, his gift of grace, the most central thing in my life. If I am, then that will lead me to not moments of worship here and there, like on Sunday mornings, but that will actually lead me to a life of worship, a life of praise where I celebrate and rejoice in my salvation, 
where I'm literally dumbfounded that God would love someone as broken and lost as me and give him grace and mercy. It's a life of prayer where I care not only for myself, but others. My prayer life is directed towards their well-being and God's glory. And that the gifts that I bring, not necessarily financial, although that, that certainly can be part of it and should be part of it, but the gifts that I bring of my time and my energy and my efforts, do I do those things intentionally in a way because I want to honor Jesus and that I want to live a life of worship and not just occasionally speak about it? And then lastly, am I listening and am I obeying? What are the opportunities Jesus is giving me? The opportunities you have are different and to, than they are to mine. Mine are unique to me. Uh, yours are unique to you. But we have this in common, that Jesus calls each of us to follow him and to go home by another way. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we bless your name along with the Magi a couple thousand years later. They didn't just stumble upon you. Uh, you led them to that moment, just as you've led every one of us to this moment in this room this morning. Uh, Lord, that's because of your divine purposes, which we cannot fathom and understand. But I thank you, Lord, that you are working your plan of salvation and that nothing will ever stop it. There's no power greater in heaven or on earth. Uh, and your enemies will fail and you will be glorified. And your people will be redeemed. So, Father, I pray for every disciple in this room this morning that we would fix our eyes on the true meaning of this time of the year. That, yes, we would enjoy uh, all of the, the frivolity around us and the, the fun, but, Father, that, that fundamentally our hope and our lives would be centered on the great joy that, that the Lord Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And, Father, I pray for those here this morning who may not be disciples, that maybe this is the first time they've ever heard uh, how much you love them and how much you have sought them out. Father, perhaps today would be a day of salvation for them. Well, Father, we thank you uh, that you love us so deeply in Christ. Uh, and we pray that this passage of Scripture would be applied to our hearts and our minds this morning as you will and as you direct. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.